Welcome to the Recharge Your Life podcast with me, Dr. Carrie Ulrich and Kelly Gunther. We are thrilled to talk to people who have made a decision that recharged their lives. Often they push themselves out of their comfort zones and took risks. We want to know about that decision point. Why did they make that decision? And most importantly, how can we learn from them? Kelly and I are passionate HR professionals, and together we co-founded our HR consulting firm, Abrachi Group. We have talked to amazing people throughout our careers and listened to them as they made decisions that changed their lives and knew that these inspirational stories would help others. And why did we call it Recharge? It's based on a book I co-authored called The Way of the HR Warrior, and in it, we have a leadership model, CHARGE, which stands for courage, humility, accuracy, resiliency, goal-oriented, and exemplary. We know that people used one or more of these qualities to help them make their decisions, and we want to learn from them. Now, sit back, listen, and be inspired by these stories, and then do something to recharge your life. Let's get to it. Hi, everyone. It's Kelly. We're thrilled to have Glenn Danis as our special guest. Glenn is an attorney practicing in Los Angeles, California. He specializes in civil appeals and class action litigation. The Daily Journal has recognized Glenn as one of the top 20 attorneys in California under 40, one of the top 100 attorneys in California, and as well as one of the top labor and employment attorneys in California each year from 2015 to 2018. Glenn graduated from Emory University School of Law with honors and was a member of the Emory Law Journal. He received his undergraduate degree from Cornell University, where he earned a Bachelor of Science in Industrial and Labor Relations. Glenn frequently presents on California appellate and employment law issues at conferences and seminars. Glenn, it's a pleasure having you in our podcast. We always like to start by asking, what do you do when you want to push yourself and expand your thinking? Well, thanks so much for having me. It's really, it's a pleasure to be here um, and I do appreciate it. Uh, well, uh, in terms of, you know, what I do to try and, you know, move my thinking, I would say that. I have gotten really into podcasts myself and, you know, starting in about 2015 or so, uh, started listening to Sam Harris, uh, coming to him out of an interest in just, you know, some of the different topics he discusses having to do with, you know, atheism and artificial intelligence. And, you know, there's sort of a, a variety of consciousness, different things that he focuses on. So I, I go to the Sam Harris podcast, and from there, there have been a, a, a range of other thinkers that just interest me and inspire me. So I have gotten into reading or listening to podcasts involving David Deutsch. He's a, he's a physicist from uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, I really like uh, Douglas Murray quite a bit. He's a conservative uh, but very funny uh, thinker and writer from the UK, uh, sort of in the spirit of Christopher Hitchens. Uh, I like the uh, the feminist uh, writer Camille Paglia, uh, who's uh, pretty well known and is just, uh, I think, a lot of fun to read and listen to. And uh, more recently, uh, some of the writing and you know discussions from Jordan Peterson, uh, who writes. Uh, from a very different perspective than Sam Harris's, but I, I think also has pushed my thinking into ways that are sort of new and different for me. 
Welcome, Glenn. Thank you for that. I um, have Camille's book on my shelf since, I don't know, the one of her first ones, Sexual Persona, mm-hmm. and I didn't know she had a podcast. I cannot wait to go and subscribe to that one. So thank you. What do you have such a good, wonderful, deep uh, podcast uh, subscription? So what is two questions for you? One, maybe one kind of learning that stands out to you or one thing that you went, oh my goodness, I didn't think of it that way. And then two, none, you didn't mention one that has to do with labor (laughs) (laughs) or California. So how do these podcasts help you in your legal practice? So two questions for you on that. Yeah. So I, I guess I would say that, you know, when it comes to what I listen to for inspiration, it, it tends not to be work related. You know, I, I really do have, I, I think my, you know, the things that I listen to that are, that are for work kind of sectioned off in a way from other parts of my life. And I want to make sure that I give time to other things because if I don't, you know, work will really intrude into every area of my life. It already does to a large extent anyway. Uh, so I really try to say, okay, I'm going to listen to or read something that's either, you know, spiritually focused or, or sort of, uh, you know, intellectually focused or something that's different than what I get all day long uh, at work. So, uh, yeah, so that's, you know, and I, I sort of use either, you know, my drive into work or, you know, certain parts of the evening, if I'm, you know, let's say taking a walk around the, the neighborhood with my dog, those are the times that I'll sit down and say, you know, or, or stand and walk around and say, okay, I'm going to, you know, focus on, on something else. And, you know, in, in terms of the, uh, you know, I guess, big ideas that I've gotten out of it, um, you know, I, I guess thinking about people as individuals uh, has been a real theme for me over the last year or two. Uh, I really am not a huge fan of thinking about people in groups. Mm. And it's really been, um, you know, my thinking has been moving, you know, more and more towards people, treating people as individuals, you know, casting aside anything I think I may know about someone um, beforehand. And, you know, and it's very difficult. It's really, that's, you know, that's not as easy as it, as it might seem. So, I really have just been focused on different ways of understanding people on an individual basis. How, how you're right. It is difficult to kind of, you have to shed things before you see them and think of them because our brain wants to categorize. It makes things easier and faster for us to process. How has that thinking more deeply and being intentional about thinking about the individual? How do you think maybe that's changed, um, in your practice or just in your life in general, have you seen some kind of tangible results from that different type of thinking over the past year or so? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a very interesting question. I I, I would say at work, you know, there's a tendency I'm, you know, I'm a litigator, so I'm, I'm frequently in front of judges. There's a tendency for lawyers, myself included very much uh, to think of, you know, judges and, and actually even other lawyers as sort of in a box uh, of either, you know, for a judge, what political party they are based on either, you know, if they're a federal judge who appointed them or if they're a state judge, you know, what party they ran under or, you know, sometimes who appointed them. 
and for lawyers to think of them in terms of, you know, if they're the defense side and they represent mm-hmm. lawyers, they meet, they, they, you know, they'll, they'll, they think and are motivated by these things. And if they're on the plaintiff side and they represent employees, they think about and are motivated by these things. And I really try to remember that, you know, those assumptions are often wrong. And there are, especially when it comes to judges, there are a lot of judges that really do not at all fit comfortably into any of those boxes. Um, you know, I, rem- I'm, I, I was just talking to some colleagues about Judge David O. Carter, who's a, a federal district court judge in the Central District of California. And, you know, on the one hand, he's very, uh, he has qualities that are quite progressive and humanitarian. He's been recently doing some really kind of out of the box stuff about uh, overseeing the homeless situation uh, and really trying to do some more interesting things, uh, actually taking his courtroom to go visit, uh, physically to go visit uh, Skid, Skid Row in downtown LA and trying to get a better understanding of what what is causing and how, you know, what what, what solutions might present themselves uh, to certain aspects that touch on, you know, uh, homeless litigation. And on the other hand, Judge Carter is also known for being, you know, uh, very exacting about what he expects of counsel. And it would be a complete mistake to assume that, you know, that he's someone who's laid back and <laughs> easygoing and maybe he's going to take it easy on plaintiff's counsel. I mean, quite the contrary. My understanding is that he's really uh, very hard to predict and is very demanding of counsel in his court, uh, but also has these very, um, you know, typically kind of progressive, uh, empathetic sides to him. So it, it, again, you know, what box does that person go into? It's better to approach him as an individual and really to think about what, you know, what might appeal to him on a case by case basis. Yes. And I think too, while our, like I said, our brain wants to kind of categorize because it makes life easier, the quicker you can recognize your own kind of putting people in boxes, your own biases, and then shed them is, is the best because we're always going to have those. So how do you just go, Oh, that was just a little stereotype I had and now it's over. Um, and I've gotten, I've received data that, that breaks that. And I'm okay with that. It's Mm -hmm. where people get stuck where they're, they're getting data to show them that this is not true, but they still hold on to that, that belief or that stereotype. You're like, no, this judge must be laid back because he's progressive. Right. And you won't let that go. Mm -hmm. Exactly. What, um, so now the big question that we love, we love to ask all our questions, Glenn, but here's the big one. So what is the decision that you made or sometimes was made for you, um, that changed the trajectory of your life? And some, what are some of those charge qualities that maybe you use to help you in that decision? Well, there's no question that for me, the biggest, the biggest decision or set of small decisions were those, you know, where I decided to, uh, and was fortunate enough to get sober in September, September 23rd of 2005, to be precise. Um, you know, I had been having a, a really uh, tough time of things. You know, we, we, we talk about, uh, or at least I talk about it in terms of, you know, I had a lot of fun with alcohol and drugs. Then I had fun with problems and then I had problems and that was kind of the arc of, you know, my drinking and using career, uh, which started when I was about 14 and 
you know, was normal, quote unquote, for, for a while, or at least looked normal, and then became something that was causing some problems. But these were problems I could deal with, whether it was, you know, a smashed up car or, you know, sort of creating a, a you know, a lot of strain on a particular relationship, or maybe not, you know, disappointing myself on something in school or, you know, or work or what have you. And then that sort of moved into a stage of nothing but problems. And those problems became, uh, you know, in retrospect, I, I can say that they became pretty big enough and that that it just, you know, really put me at this crossroads, you know, within, within the space of a very short amount of time, uh, I lost a very important, you know, relationship with a girl that I had been dating uh, mm-hmm. for, you know, about five or six years who had finally had enough and lost a position at a, you know, a very prominent law firm that was just perplexed about why I was, you know, couldn't really be counted on in terms mm-hmm. of, of the work that I was producing, um, you know, was broke, um, even though I was earning a lot of money and my family was just like, what is going on here? Why, why are you, you know, what, <laughs> that, you know, just not understanding, really having almost no relationship with my family uh, at the same time, you know, friends who had just had enough and given up on me. I mean, all of that really happened within a pretty short amount of time. And, you know, for me, uh, I'm, I'm just incredibly lucky that I was desperate uh, and that sort of caused a great amount of desperation. I mean, a ton of pain, a lot of, uh, you know, feeling sorry for myself, you know, lashing out at the people around me. Um, but there were, you know, there was, there was enough kind of spark of motivation, I guess, in me to do something about it. And, you know, just to, to fast forward, my family, uh, had, had reached out to, uh, a lawyer who was helping me with one more set of, you know, of a crashed car and, you know, mm-hmm. a set of, uh, problems from that. And they, this lawyer happened to be working with a uh, sort of an interventionist named Bob Timmons, who worked on the West Side in Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, I didn't know anything about recovery or anything having to do with any of that at the time. And I was just a mess. And my family had me go meet with this guy. And I remember I went into his office and, you know, he had all these kind of pictures of him with different rock bands and all this stuff around. And I didn't really understand why I was there or what was going on. And he was just like, so, you know, what's, what's going on with you? And I told him about all these external things and, you know, uh, circumstances that were conspiring against me (laughs) and employers who didn't understand and Mm -hmm. girlfriends who, you know, were, uh, you know, disloyal and all this kind of thing. (laughs) And he, uh, and he sort of just laughed at me and was like, all right, well, I think, you know, I think first, first of all, we're going to need to get you into treatment somewhere. And I thought to myself, great, you know, I'm going to go to like, you know, one of these places with equine therapy and a pool (laughs) And, you know, biofeedback and maybe meditation and maybe a Zen garden and all that. That sounds great. Like a, like a month long vacation. Awesome. And he was like, well, you know, I don't know if it's going to be exactly like that, but you know, we will, we will reach out to you and, you know, I'll set it up and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I sort of didn't, I didn't hear anything else. 
And what turned out was that after several months, I mean, at the time I was on methadone maintenance, which I don't know if you know anything about it, yes. yep. is, a, is a very, very yeah. uh, difficult thing yes, to be is. dealing with. So I, I was, I had to go spend about four months stepping down my dose at a clinic in New York and, uh, and then going into a long-term physical detox. But when that ended, uh, I came back out to California and they had someone who was uh, sober pick me up and this guy drove me and we're, you know, we're driving through uh, Pasadena and we're going through a, um, you know, sort of the nice area of Pasadena. Uh-huh. And I'm thinking to myself, this is great. You know, we're going through uh, <laughs> like the, Ro- the Rose Bowl area. Yeah, beautiful. I thought that, you know, finally they really understood that they had a very important person coming. <laughs> And they were going to, you know, fix me up. And then we kept, we kept driving though. And, and the scenery changed a bit and we ended up in, you know, Northern North Pasadena at a, uh, at a treatment facility called impact, which is, you know, for anyone who doesn't know about it is really, uh, you know, is very rigorous and, and not, and not short. Uh, and when I got there, you know, the worst news that I could possibly have heard was that this wasn't going to be sort of a 30 day deal. This was going to be like a much longer than that. And the lucky, and I think, you know, for, for purposes of our discussion, the thing that really was most fortunate about it for me was that I had nowhere to go and nothing Mm. to do. I had nothing to get back to, you know, Mm. it's pretty common that people who, uh, end up in treatment, you know, once there's, there's some amount of, you know, a few days sober, it's like, oh, I got to get back to fix this and that. And I got to get out of here and I got to go, you know, and there, you know, we sort of joke about it in treatment where it's like, oh, you know, he's got a, he's got a goldfish at home that needs feeding. And, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, but I had, I had nothing, I had nowhere to go. No one who want really wanted me around. Um, so I just said, you know, I'm, I'm here to do whatever, whatever there is for me to do here. And if it takes a while, I'm here, you know, I don't care. I've got nowhere to be. And it turns out that that's an incredibly helpful place to be, uh, for purposes of recovery. And, you know, I I guess I would say, you know, in terms of, you know, your book, this would be, there was a lot of humility going on just Mm -hmm. in terms of, teachability, being open and willing to do different things. Uh, and I just said, you know, whatever, like I'm, I'm here to, you know, so I just followed a lot of direction and started doing a lot of work on, you know, myself and, mm-hmm. you know, sort of taking direction from other people, people who, you know, just a couple of years earlier, I probably would have said, can't teach me anything because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm more educated and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and, you know, it turns out that I was just incredibly lucky and fortunate to be surrounded by people that, you know, knew, knew, I I knew nothing about recovery. You know, I knew a lot about other things, but not that. And these were people who had many years of recovery in them and had a great deal that I could learn from them. And thankfully I was able to do that and, you know, and stayed long enough uh, that, that I was able to build, kind of different patterns and a foundation so that when I left there, you know, I was really a different person. I mean, you know, it was, it was nine, 10 months later and I had just an entirely different uh, outlook. You know, some would say that that was a, you know, a spiritual awakening and, you know, sort of a, um, a shift that I really had nothing to do with. 
Um, so a lot of it was just was being lucky and being desperate enough to be willing. Yeah. Um, first of all, uh, congratulations on being sober. And I will say I have, I studied psychology and I have quite a bias toward addiction theory to people who have been gone through it. I tend to believe talking, we just talked about, look at the individual, right? But people who have been through addiction and come out of it can be so vulnerable and authentic and also tolerate zero BS because they've been through so much. Um, so I kind of appreciate that, that personality type. And I can talk to you for hours about all the addiction piece, but I want to focus on actions for people because so many people know someone, they are someone, or maybe they have a family member. But before we get to your advice and, and your thoughts on that, Glenn, I had to ask you this question. When did you realize, if you can, if you can think about it, did you realize shit, it's me. It's not everyone else because you, <laughs> you, you were so good. You're like, I cause I know those excuses. I've heard them from people. Yeah. The girlfriend doesn't get me. Yeah. The job's up my butt all the time. Like, bah, 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 right. And it's always someone's fault. The cop was there and he shouldn't have been there or whatever. When, if you can remember when you went, ah, shoot, <laughs> it's me, right? Like this is such bullshit. It's actually me. Well, <laughs> when, I mean- when did that happen? Yeah. I mean, I I will credit the majority of this to, you know, where I went to treatment. I mean, I, I came in there with, you know, still thinking of myself as a first and foremost, a lawyer who (laughs) is very smart and has some people that are causing problems for me that I need to figure out how to deal with. And, (laughs) And pretty quickly, you know, I had, you know, caseworkers and was dealing with other people who were like, you know, motherfucker, you are the problem. <laughs> you know, people who just said to me straight up, look where you are. <laughs> you know, do you think that you're in a suit downtown? You are fucking raking leaves in a, you know, you're raking imaginary leaves in a treatment center in, in you know, in a, in a, you know, sort of questionable area of town. And you have got nothing, you know, you got nothing coming, you know, and, and that was really the mantra. I mean, you know, I, I had been familiar with some some people who went to, you know, sort of fancy treatment centers and that kind of thing. And, it, you know, that's not how it's done everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, you know, my wife, I don't think she would mind me mentioning, you know, had worked at this very uh, well-known and very expensive treatment place in Malibu. She was a therapist there for teens and young adults. And there's none of that there. You know, when you're paying, you know, 60 grand a month and people have options, I guess, you know, there's there's an idea of sort of, you know, kissing the ass of the client. Where, <laughs> where I went, there was no kissing the ass of the client. And they would just say, you know, I mean, I went to the treatment center that uh, that, you know, uh, Robert Downey Jr. got sober in. OK. And that uh, old dirty bastard uh, went to and shortly after uh, died, you know, and they said, you know, you, this is this is the end of the line. You know, this is where you go when you've got nothing else uh, coming. And I really like that really impressed upon me, you know, and they and they and they put me in the kitchen for three or four months because they said, you know, you need to be, you know, kind of broken down. Your ego needs to be dismantled Mm -hmm. and nothing is going to dismantle an ego like getting up every day at five in the morning and, you know, having to go work in a kitchen to prepare mm-hmm. meals all day for someone who, you know, thinks he's above, you know, manual labor or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, enough of that, 
you know, and and really, it really built up. And, you know, sooner or later, it really appealed to me. I, you know, I, I really came to say, you know, this is absolutely the way to do things. And you're absolutely right. You know, that is, that is carried over to a lot of things in the way I live day to day. I mean, I have, you know, very little, um, sort of, uh, you know, tolerance for excuses and bullshit these days, um, because I know that it's possible, uh, you know, to, to, to make a lot of progress, but it really requires just saying, you know, someone's got to say to you, you know, you were the problem, (laughs) you know, you can move around and, you know, you can move from here to California and, you know, move on a, you know, to a nice sort of coastal area or whatever, but it doesn't matter where you are, you're bringing you with you. And if you don't make and if you don't make the changes, you're going to get the same shit you always got, which is going to be bad and it's going to get worse. (laughs) I um, yes, I was just thinking the if we could put the quote, Kelly, for this one, like, motherfucker, it's you. You know, that's (laughs) I'm not sure that gets posted well on LinkedIn, but I do love that. And (laughs) even if you're not if you don't have an addiction like the the traditional right alcohol and, and, and drugs or something like that or gambling it's still you, like whatever you're battling. And that's what I love about your story, Glenn, is whatever you're battling, it's still you. If I'm a workaholic or whatever I'm doing, it's my issue. And I have to like figure out how to manage that issue. Um, Some of us get to go, like you said, like you had nine to 10 months to focus on it and you didn't have something else on the other side. So I guess with the, the short amount of time that we have, I want Maybe if you could speak to two audiences, one, someone who is addicted and needs to hear something from you. And then also more likely, I'm thinking, I'm thinking most people aren't listening to our podcast for, you know, the, who are, who are also kind of maybe on uh, doing, imbibing alcohol a little bit too much. They're probably not listening to our podcast, but I bet you family members are. And so maybe you could speak to them too on maybe some tangible because they're pretty desperate and how to help. I'm sure your family was very desperate and very upset and trying to figure out how to help you. So maybe you could answer those two questions for those two audiences. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, you know, there, there's sort of good and bad news there. You know, the, the, the bad news is that, and, you know, and I've been in this position many, many times since being sober, you know, being a, a lot of people that I know know me as being sober because I, I, I'm, I'm open about it. And, you know, in the last 16 plus years, I get a lot of calls from friends and family and mm-hmm. other, you know, uh, a friend of a friend, et cetera. And the bad news is that you can't get sober for anyone else. Exactly. <laughs> and, and there is really, you know, all of the good intentions in the world are not going to get someone else sober. All of the money in the world, all of those things, you know, but, uh, you know, it, it's not, it's not entirely hopeless because there are times when someone who, you know, is in, is really in the shit is, is kind of vulnerable and maybe has kind of a brief moment of clarity. And those are the moments to maybe get in there. And especially if they seem like they're sort of asking, uh, mm-hmm. asking questions or say, you know, maybe there's sort of a glimmer of an understanding that, that this is a problem that they need to fix. Those are the moments to really get in and to try and support that person. And, you know, all I could suggest would be, you know, uh, 12 step programs are, Mm -hmm. I I believe in them and are extremely helpful. Uh, and I think that for people who, uh, if you have the means to do it, 
uh, you know, treatment, uh, something where there's a physical removal from an, you know, an environment for, for as long as you can, uh, is extremely helpful. And I know these days, you know, a lot of insurance, uh, will pay for some amount of treatment, uh, but it's really very, very helpful to just be able to have the luxury of, you know, uh, doing nothing but concentrating on trying to get better, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because having to deal with, you know, bills and people and work and if there still is work and all those things while trying to make these these kind of massive changes in one's life is really very difficult. Uh, it's very difficult anyway. So I guess I would suggest, you know, trying to just take take advantage of those down moments and say, you know, if, if someone might be able to agree to do something, try to shift them to one of these things that might help them get better. And, you know, again, 12-step programs, treatment centers, I, I believe in them because they work for me. Yeah. And I would, everything I've always heard, Glenn, is you cannot do it alone. So you can't just kind of white knuckle it and do it all by yourself. Like you need help. You need to be in a 12 step program or, or have a a sober coach or something to help you. Absolutely. And I I think to extrapolate that point on, you can't help someone if they don't want it. Kelly and I talk all the time in business because being in HR, we're coaches and influencers. And we always say to people, you can't implement things if the client doesn't want it. You can't want it more than the client wants it. And I think even with you, Glenn, in, in law, you might be saying to a client, well, this is what you should probably do. Here's three options. And if they're like, nah, like you can't want it more than that. <laughs> it's the same thing, right? You can't want it. Like Kelly and I can see very clearly sometimes like you are going to be in so much trouble if you do this. Like, please don't, please. And you try to influence and control and do everything. And guess what they say? Nah. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. You can't want it more than the client. You can't want it more than your friend or your family member who's who's addicted to something right now. You can't want it more. And it's super hard. So I think, Cal, I don't know if you want to talk about, we don't have to go down the, the, the sad sack of HR trying to influence things and how hard that is. But what are your thoughts on Glenn's just amazing interview and his story? Well, thank you so much for being so vulnerable and sharing Glenn with us. Um, deeply personal. And, and you know, honestly, a very inspirational story. I mean, what I like, I think the most is just how true, how, um, how detailed you were in sort of the, the levels that you were at in your life. And then the sort of the, the resurgence you found in yourself to actually, you know, like you said, get beaten down, work in a kitchen, get the structure to find yourself again, to find out how you can kind of overcome work, the recovery and be the best version of yourself that you can be not only for yourself, but also for your friends and family. So just one quick question. When you came out of, when you came out of your treatment program, what was, what is, uh, what was something that your family friends did that really kind of helped you to continue on the path? Yeah. I mean, my, you know, my family, you know, there's a thing that happens. Some people uh, have a history of, of kind of trying to get sober and relapsing. And a lot of uh, family are wary of, you know, new attempts at recovery. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, that wasn't my situation. My family was just just overwhelmed with gratitude mm-hmm. uh, over the fact that I was emerging from this place with a do- with a, you know an obviously different perspective. So they uh, really just didn't you know never judged anything when I say you know I I'm I'm 
in New York and I've got many years sober and I want to go to a meeting, they still, you know, smile and say, of course, you know, mm-hmm. there's never this idea of why do you still go to the meetings or, you know, why do you still, you know, why, why can't you have a drink? I mean, none of those things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from my, from my, my father just passed away uh, three weeks ago mm-hmm. and, uh, the last text I got from him at the end of September was congratulating me on my sober anniversary. Um, and, you know, knowing that I had given my family, uh, you know, the ability to, to not have to worry about that uh, was really something that I'm just so happy about. Um, you know, so yeah, it's really uh, having that support and acknowledging it and, and not, you know, trivializing it. And, you know, all of that has been very, very helpful to me. Mm, well, thank you so much. And I'm so sorry for the loss of your father. Um, but what a great text to receive is one of the last messages from him. Um, again, just, I think, in furtherance of your continued health and your continued um, dedication to, you know, committing to recovery, because I know every day it is a commitment. It is commitment and choice you make. So again, Glenn, our sincere condolences for the loss of your father. We are so grateful to have had the opportunity to speak with you. And we encourage anyone else to who's listening to this to connect with you, Glenn. Um, we will include all of your contact information in the show notes. So please make sure that you reach out. And again, Glenn, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Recharge Your Life podcast. Please sign up for our newsletter at abracigroup.com and follow us on social media. You can find us on LinkedIn at Abrachi Group, Instagram at Warriors of HR, and Twitter at Warriors underscore HR. Remember to subscribe to our podcast, leave a review, and please tell a friend. And be sure to drop us a note on how you are recharging your life. We can't wait to hear from you.